welcome everybody to the Hockey Think Tank podcast brought to you by thehockeythinktank.com, a website for all players, parents, and coaches to go to get a little bit of education and a little bit of inspiration regarding the greatest game on the planet. What an episode we have for you guys here today. We are bringing on Patrick O'Sullivan. And Patrick's had an unbelievable hockey career. Uh, He grew up mostly in Detroit, played for the National Team Development Program, was actually the number one overall selection in the OHL draft, and uh, played, as we'll hear on the podcast, seven years of junior hockey because he started at a pretty, pretty young age. Uh, But he won a World Junior Championship with the United States, the first ever gold medal that they've won. And he went on to play over 350 career NHL games. Uh, One of the more talented players that you'll see and that we saw. He's the same birth year as Jeff and I. Uh, What we did get into the podcast, uh, just an absolutely tough upbringing. He had an abusive father. He's written a book. Uh, He's been on TV and uh, done radio as well. Um, So if you Googled him, you'd definitely be able to hear more about that story. And we do get into it on the podcast. But just an awesome, awesome hockey mind. And we were really, really excited excited to get him on the podcast here today but before we do get over to Patrick let's bring on another really really good guy in Jeff Lavecchio. Vex what's up today man? How much bro? I was uh, was pretty excited to get on this podcast and then have Patrick Sullivan tell me he wanted a framed shirtless picture of me that was the first thing he said (laughs) when we got on the phone and I was like dude big fan of mine I guess so that was pretty cool Um, I was a big fan of hearing his uh Rapid first wait first of all first of all that isn't entirely true i don't think it was any shirtless i literally i completely made that up if people listening to this don't know that i made that up and they obviously have <laughs> wanted to make sure one episode <laughs> yeah he clearly did not say that but he basically did so i went with it um I love this story about Rafi Torres, like not being an Ambi Turner. Like, like that was like my favorite part of the podcast was him <laughs> telling that story about Rafi Torres. So listen all the way towards the end when he talks about, uh, about Torres. And, you know, that was a guy who I, who like, I probably would have kind of not, not as tough as him, but I kind of would have had to play like him if I would have tried to make it in the NHL. Um, so I remember like watching Rafi Torres a lot. Cause just skate around the rink at a billion miles an hour, just trying to make stuff happen. Um, so that was kind of funny to hear that. And, and then he talked about, Oh yeah, you could only play the left side. And I was like, Ooh God, this guy sounds a lot like me. <laughs> He's a, so I, thought that was pretty, I thought that was pretty funny, but, uh, what a great guy. I mean, to, to overcome the thing that the things that he's overcome and, um, to hear his story. And then, you know, he's still so passionate about hockey. Like how amazingly cool is that, that he went through what he did and, um, you know, he still played 350 games in the NHL, won a, you know, world junior championship gold medal for team USA. Just so, so many cool things that, that he's, done in his life and that he's overcome in his life. And now you hear he's given back to the next generation of hockey, um, in a, in a whole bunch of different ways, a multitude of ways, if you will. Um, and I just, I think that's really cool. He seems like an absolutely genuine, good person. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, you know, we all go through ups and downs in our careers and stuff. His downs were, were, I mean, 
insanely tough. I mean, the physical abuse from his dad, and uh, like I said, you can we we do get into it on the podcast, but there's been stories written about it. He wrote a book about it as well, and uh, it's just just tough. But coming out on the other side of that, and and him being a father now, he's got two boys coming up, and um, just a really really good human, and just an awesome and sharp hockey mind too. So getting the chance to pick his brain on a lot of different stuff was cool. I, what I love to hear him talk about uh, was uh, his time with the World Junior Gold medal when they won the first one and uh for any usa hockey fans um getting on the inside of of the national team development program and how they develop there and their culture and things like that it's a it's a really really neat window and and you know he played on that team with a lot of guys that we grew up playing with and against and stuff so that was really cool to hear but um just awesome perspective on a lot of different things and i think this is going to be one i you know it is funny like we sit here and we kind of talk and and we know when there's ones that will resonate with a lot of people and and this one's certainly going to resonate with a lot of people because he's he's just so passionate authentic and and not afraid to speak his mind and and the stuff that he says and and just his message and vision for for the game and and for the betterment of the kids too is uh it's just it's awesome man and this is going to be a really fun one really good episode for people to hear for sure yeah totally seems very awesome dude and excited to get him back on the podcast to to dive into some more hockey stuff yeah yeah, absolutely. And uh, so with that, uh, we should get over to Patrick here because um, this was a great conversation. A couple of announcements from a hockey think tank standpoint. We are doing another conference. So we were planning on doing a, you know, a big conference in Chicago again this summer like we did last year. We had so much fun at, obviously, with COVID and everything that's going on, not able to do that. So what we're going to do is we're going to have a, a back-to-hockey conference. And uh, so we have sp- uh, it's going to be one night, August 19th, six speakers, 30 minutes each, uh, just from 7 to 10 Eastern, just a short thing to, to get kids and, and to get coaches ready to go for uh, for the next season. So the six speakers that we have coming, I'm really, really excited about. I'll be talking uh, about the recruiting process and, and little tips and keys for, for kids to, to get recruited and scouted, whether that's you know for junior hockey, college hockey, pro hockey, whatever it may be. Jeff's going to talk about, hey, Jeff's back to the conference again. He's going to give it. Uh, he's going to talk about why elite athletes are elite. Uh, Alyssa Gallardi, I'm really excited for her to speak. Uh, we get so many questions and so much feedback from from girls and women's hockey about the difference of playing girls versus boys hockey so she's going to talk a lot about that brian kane nhl skill development coach he's going to talk about uh forming habits matthew calderoni who he had on the who we had on the podcast is going to speak as well he's a resilience coach and he's going to talk about four things to unlock your potential really really excited about that one and then we actually have a nutritionist coming on pearl nuremberg who uh runs a company eat this for performance and uh, she's a Cornell grad uh, up in the Montreal area. Just awesome, awesome, awesome performance nutritionist. So it's just going to be like tangible things for kids and coaches to, to get better throughout the year. And uh, I'm really excited about it. Go to thehockeythinktank.com slash conferences to get your registration. Again, it's virtual, so there is a limited amount of spots. So uh, if, you, if this is something that you as a parent think would be awesome for your kid, uh, make sure you go to the website and get that done quickly because I have a feeling that they're going uh, to go pretty quick. So I'm really looking forward to it. Some tangible things for the kids to take into the year. And uh, plus you get to see Jeff Lavecchio talk again. So. <laughs> I, won't as, I won't be as nervous this time because i've done a bunch of speeches since then so yeah, yeah i'm excited dude that's gonna be really fun and really exciting and i've given that speech to uh some billion dollar with a b companies over covid so yeah i'm i'm, I'm stoked and ready to go for that 
Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be a lot of fun. So like I said, go to the hockeythinktank.com slash conferences uh, to register today. And again, that is August 19th. It's a Wednesday and it's going to be from seven to 10, just a one night thing. And it's only 49 bucks to do it. So um, under 50 bucks to for this for one night. Um, again, we don't we know that it's COVID. We know that people are going through tough times. This is something that uh, we didn't want to gouge people from a price standpoint. We want to just give back. So I'm um, really, really excited for it. And uh, before we do get over to Patrick, we want to thank Gel Sticks, our title sponsor. Thank you for supporting us. Uh, they are an amazing training aid company. Get your sticks at gelsticks.com, G-E-L-S-T-X.com. And use the coupon code THINKTANK, one word, to get a discount on some awesome training aid sticks thank you to train heroic the app that jeff uses uh for his dissemination uh <laughs> nice word Ooh. that you used to use uh stole that from you uh for his all of his workouts that he has and again that's another thing with hockey starting to ramp up a little bit right now rink starting to open up a little bit uh to to get going on your strength and conditioning if you haven't already use jeff's train heroic app and uh, thank you to all the listeners. We love you. Uh, you are going to absolutely love this conversation with Patrick O'Sullivan from so many different standpoints, from a life standpoint, from a hockey standpoint, from a resilience standpoint. He is an awesome guy, and uh, we're really looking forward to bringing you this one. So without further ado, let's head it on over to Patrick O'Sullivan. We are so excited to have on this episode of the podcast, all the way up in the Toronto area, good old Oakville, Ontario, Patrick O'Sullivan. Patrick, how are you doing today, man? I'm doing good. How are you guys doing? Good day. Good day. I actually spent most of the day on the lake, so I'm, I'm rearing and ready to go here. Vax, how are you today, man? I'm better than you. I mean, I'm not sitting in my car doing this interview in the heat, so I'm cool. <laughs> That's okay. Gangster. You got to do what you got to do. Um, <laughs> well, Patrick, man, hey, like we so appreciate you coming on and, and uh, you know, we, we want to take it way back for you. And, and obviously there's there's a lot to talk about. But one of the things that yeah. uh, Jeff and I, we, we so admire and, and so many people that we have on the podcast is just the passion for hockey and, and just the passion and love for the game. We love talking to people that have that passion and love for the game. And, you know, even though your childhood, as we'll probably get into, was a, was a little bit tough, what, what was it about you growing up, you, you falling in love with the game? And even as you kind of got through going in through the ups and downs, you know, you've been quoted as saying, I got through it because I love the game so much. So uh, if you can, just talk to us a little bit how you developed that and, uh, and we'll start from there. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, first of all, I want to tell you guys, uh, I listen to the podcast all the time. And I think, I think you do a really good job of being entertaining, but also having quality hockey talk. So whether that's somebody like me who's played at a, at a you know, at a high level, or like, I've got a bunch of the, the, the dads of the team that I coach listening. And so I think it's a, it's a good mix. And it's probably why you guys have, have uh, grown so much is because it's entertaining, but educational and the amount of uh, quality people that you have on here is, uh, I think it's super interesting. It's, it's honestly, I'm not just pumping your tires. Like I, I, it's one of the few things I do make sure I listen to every week. And, um, it's, it's neat. Like it's, it's, uh, I'm not going to say I'm not, I'm not a super fan necessarily. I don't, I don't need your <laughs> autograph, but, um, I'm happy, I'm happy to come on with you guys. And I certainly don't want any pictures of Jeff with his shirt off. So, if you know, <laughs> uh, he does listen to the podcast. Uh, He's not just pumping our yeah, tires. He does listen. <laughs> I've, been well, look, I've been looking forward to, to jumping on with you guys. So I just want to tell you that off the top, but yeah, I mean, for me, 
I think most people who listen to this will probably know um, like my name and at least a little bit of, of my backstory. So, you know, having said that, and I won't dive too deep into it, but my, my dad was a maniac. Like, I think if you Google, someone told me this a year or two ago, if you Google crazy, like top 10 crazy sports parents, he'll pop up in, in some of the articles and stuff. So, um, it was, it was pretty extreme and, and really, you know, physically abusive. So it was, hockey was always something that was like extreme love and extreme hate. And, you know, you don't really realize that when you're a kid, like I just, I wanted to play hockey so bad. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't realize necessarily how bad it was for me in my own house. Like it was, it's not until you're probably 12 or 13 where kids in that situation start to understand that, Oh, okay. Like it's not this way for other kids at their house. And like my dad was, was smart enough to, not get caught really till, till I was about 16 when, when I decided to, to get the police involved and everything else. But, you know, people were suspicious and saw things and probably should have done more. And when I wrote my book, I actually went back and talked to some of the parents of kids that I played with and coaches. And, and most of them had expressed that, that sentiment of like, we, we knew something was going on and maybe we saw, you know, my dad would kick me in the parking lot or something and they'd see it. But then it's like, well, he's such a good player you know, like it can't be that bad. And, and then, you know, we, I changed teams a lot, which as you guys know, is, is a lot more rare in the States than it is in Canada, certainly in Toronto. And that's where I live now. My wife's from here, but I grew up mostly outside Detroit. So I was playing on different teams every year. And once in a while, I'd, we'd move to Toronto for a year and I could never figure that out as a kid, but it was all, you know, a plan of his to try to, to stay under the radar as much as possible. So I think uh, the number one reason I played in the NHL was because I tried to spend every second possible outside of my house. And what I did when I was outside of my house, 99% of the time was do stuff with a stick in my hand. And uh, it's interesting now, and you guys talk about it a lot on your podcast about all these skill development people. And it's like people have their kids on the ice year round and it's, I got to do this and this and where's my pylons. Where's my next stupid thing I can jump over and, and all, and, and sometimes that stuff maybe has its place, but you know, the, the, I try to tell people that the reason guys get to the very top or any levels up there beyond minor hockey is it's a combination of things, but it's, it's a drive and it's all the stuff you do when no one's looking. Right. So I just think that was, I, for some reason I had that as a little kid and that whatever that is, it's hard to quantify that or put a, put a name tag on it. That was kind of how, I managed to deal with the abuse, I think, and then eventually get to the point where I could do something about it and get that individual out of my life so I could continue on, on on my own path. I think that's probably the easiest way to sum it up. Yeah, for sure, man. Well, one of the crazy things about it, too, is that, and, and you've, in some interviews that you've done, have said it, but just kind of looking back now, I mean you were one of the best players growing up too. And like, so Jeff and I are the same birth year as you and, and we knew who you were and, and it has to be some crazy, mm-hmm. sick, twisted thing with your dad because he was abusing you and all this kind of stuff. But in his own mind, he was probably like, oh, this is working because my son is doing really well and he's the first overall mm-hmm. pick in the OHL draft and he's, you know, on the fast track to the, to the NHL and all this kind of stuff. So like, how did you manage 
all the anxiety and all the stuff that you were going through with your dad and also having to manage like the expectations of almost being like one of the next top young generational talents along with all of that stuff like as a 15 16 year old kid like that that had been tough man it was, but uh, and this this is it's hard to explain for me, and it may be hard for for other people to digest. But because of how I was living, I was I was almost sheltered from that, and the expectations that were put on me by my own father were far more severe and and and, and much higher than they ever could have been, you know, from from outside sources. And you guys know when we were little or teenagers or whatever, like there was the internet was just starting. There was no social media there. I wasn't watching like these guys. Now I work with 14, 15 year old kids and they're watching themselves on YouTube. And like, we, we know how it is now. And it wasn't like that back then, but you know, like I had Don Cherry coming to my games when I was at the, the program, the development program in Ann Arbor, you know, because I was up for the OHL draft. And like, so I started to grasp, you know, the reality of what I was maybe going to be able to do. And I just thought ever since I was a little kid that, I was going to find a way to play in the NHL. I played two years up almost every year I played, which is insane when you think about it. Um, it's probably why I never actually played against you guys, despite us being the same age. <laughs> I know, we knew yeah. you, but never played you. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, like, I, I think, though, it, it limited me as a player. And I know we'll get into the more of the hockey-centric stuff down, down the road here when we're talking. But, like, I think one year would have been plenty. And two years, it really molded me into, like, I could only survive a certain way. And luckily I was really smart and that was my, probably my best attribute as a player all the way up. And so, but, but I did, I didn't have a choice to find out if there were other ways I could play. So it's the same way with like, I'll get the odd weirdo who's like, Hey, you know, your dad's insane, but what he did must've helped. Like you were, you were good. And if anything, what he did made it harder because I was always tired. I was overworked. I was doing these stupid workouts all the time and, you know, obviously living in fear in my own house and any of the possible positives that could have come out of that experience were quickly erased and turned into negatives. Like he, he had no idea what he was doing. He thought he did. He, he Have you guys heard of the, the, the this book? It's called the hockey handbook. It's probably 80 years old, maybe, maybe less than that. 70 at this point. No, no, I've heard of it. It was it was written by Lloyd Percival, and you guys will I know the type of people you are. You'll probably look that name up after this, but it was something that the Soviets were looking at way back and taking information from. And it was a really forward-thinking book at the time about hockey training. And my father found this, I guess, when he was you know when he was young. And you know, to not not to go backwards to your other question, but the main reason, first of all, I think he had mental health problems. And, and that played a role in this whole thing. But also, he was a failed player. Played at really low-level pro, bounced around. Um, he, he's one of those guys who always would say, I remember this as a kid, always saying, well, I, I never got a fair shake. And, you know, things would have been different for me if it bounced this way and that. And we, like, we all know those people, right? Like, the fact of the matter is, you weren't any good, and you had an awful attitude, and you went nowhere. So when he saw that I was a good player as a little kid or had a chance to be, it was like, okay, now – I'm a, I'm the smartest guy in the room everywhere I go. I'm going to show everyone that I got screwed by making my kid into this hockey machine, right? So, like, that's pressure in itself. And and I just went to the rink and played all the time, and I didn't spend a ton of time with other kids on the team or other parents. I didn't hear 
some of the stuff to kids here today about being really good for your age and, and, and the negativity that comes along with that. And that's a, that's a different, that's a different difficult challenge I think for kids today. But for me, any, all the tough stuff I had to deal with growing up was in my own house. And then one, once I got to, once I got to play pro, I quick, quickly realized that there were other people that were really good. <laughs> and, uh, because junior hockey for me was a joke. It, it probably was a mistake. I probably should have um, went to school. I think it would have been better for my mental health development and, 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 and not be on my own all the time as a kid in junior. And I graduated early because my dad had wanted me to, if I was going to go to school to go after three years of high school instead of four. So I used to eat my lunch in the bathroom as a kid in school to get extra credits and all this crazy stuff. Right. So, um, like it, it, there was pressure, but it certainly wasn't from outside sources. And I really didn't know where I fit in my own age necessarily because I'd always played with kids two years older than me. And how, how do you think that affected you? Like just life wise. Cause I, I remember I was in fifth grade um, and I played up on a team with a bunch of like eighth graders. It was like the only time I played up for a whole year and like fifth grade to eighth grade, like, that's a big difference. Like kids about to go into high school, like the girl stuff that they were talking mm-hmm. about in the locker room. I had no idea what they were talking about. And I would just go along and pretend that I knew some of these things they were talking about. And then I'd find like the guy who I was best friends with. And I'd pull him off to the side and be like, Hey Maddie, like what, what is this they're talking about? And it was like, it was very awkward for me. And like, it made me grow up so much faster than I actually had to. And like, I can't imagine someone like you playing, up your whole life like that like just just almost feeling like and you when you're a kid you don't know but like you almost feel like you don't belong you don't get to actually be a kid because you're living at an older advanced age and you're not ready for that yeah you're 100 percent right i mean i i remember stuff as a kid and and like what i mean is like in minor hockey and like just you know, the odd time that we would attend like a team barbecue or something. And this was rare, but when it did happen, you know, I always felt like it was, it was like, it was weird because I could do everything we could, you know, if we're playing soccer, it was like, okay, I, I was basically was the same as everyone else, but then you're right. We, the conversation would turn to something or whatever. And it's like, what, what do you guys even talk about? I have no idea. Some of the stuff, like I've never heard it. And, and, you know, it's just, it's, I don't think you realize then what that does. And, and just like, I would put that in the same um, column as like what, what the abuse did to me. I didn't really realize or feel the effects of until I was in my late twenties, to be honest. And then it's like, okay, now I have all these problems and this is why. And it's why I had to stop playing pro because I just couldn't function anymore. I couldn't play and also address the stuff I knew was eating me alive and was, was going to ruin my life and my relationships. And I had all the things that you think you would need to be happy at back then, the wife, kids and everything else. And it's like this, I was miserable. So, you know, like here, here's a, here's a quick funny story. So I, I started playing junior when I was 13 and 13. And then Wait, what? The, the season, yeah, yeah. time out. What go, league? How many letters were in the league? I played junior C when I was 13 and I played junior B when I was 14. And then when I was 15, I went to the, the NTDP program a year as an underage. Right. And then I got drafted to the OHL and I played 
four years in that league because of the old four lockout. So I played seven years of junior. I don't, wow. <laughs> I don't think there's too many other people oh. that have done. Yeah. And so, so like, so what happened was the reason it happened was because the team I was on when I was 13, something happened and my dad took me off the team and I couldn't, it was too late in the year. I forget when it was or what the rules were back then. Who knows? But I feel like it was like November or December and I couldn't get on another team. So he started calling. I was living in Detroit and he started calling teams in this league just on the other side of the border, like Sarnia area, Strathroy, London, Ontario. If anyone listening to this knows where that is great. If not just picture Sarnia, Windsor, whatever, like around there. And uh, so everyone was like, a, we're full, B, cold as your kid, and he'd tell them, and they'd be like, get out of here. So a couple, though, they're like, okay, come and skate. Then these teams were brutal. And, and I went to one skate, and they're like, no, he's wait. Like, I was little, too. I, I wasn't big for my age or anything, so it was even more dramatic. And then the one team, like, probably, I don't remember, and I don't even know if stats on this are, exist in this league on the Internet at this point, but I, I ended up going and skating, and, and this team signed me. So I was playing junior hockey. I'll never forget this. My first practice, I go in and it's like, it's a junior locker room. You guys know exactly what I'm talking about. Guys are swearing. One guy's, I, 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 this is not a joke. The door to the room is open and he's smoking in the room and he's blowing the smoke out of the door. (laughs) (laughs) And I was so, I'm like, what is going on? The same guy worked at uh, a muffler shop during the day. And I had, we had another guy on my team who, had a kid. He was our captain. And in that league, you could be a double overager. So I was 13. My, one of my line mates was 21 turning 22. It was insane. So like, I didn't even shower guys. I was too young at that point to shower in minor hockey. And then it's like these guys. So like, again, like to answer your question, I could go on all day, but to answer your question, what does that do to you mentally? I don't know. I mean, it wasn't great. I was mature, luckily. I mean, that's kind of one of the things that went my way with my whole crazy story was that for some reason, my personality was one where I could piece stuff together and it not completely ruined me, at least in the moment. Now, the long-term damage that stuff like that caused me, I don't know, necessarily. I can't pinpoint it. I know I've done a lot of therapy and, you know, why would anyone with half a brain want to, you know, put their kid in a situation like that? is beyond me. I think 16 for 99% of the kids is too young for junior. So like, I mean, that's kind (laughs) of, that's the short version of, of that playing up and then being jammed down your throat. And how do you deal with the older guys and kids and the stuff you hear in those rooms? Um, Especially at like that low of a level, they didn't even care about hockey. They were just having fun. They were going out all the time. And you know, like, it's just, it's completely the opposite of what you would want a 13, 14 year old kid to experience. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Jeff, you said it even earlier. Like, I feel like even kids today, I mean, you just let kids be kids. I think that's a huge part of their development, even from a hockey standpoint, is letting kids be kids. And, you know, I've had conversations with with other higher level hockey people, too, some who push their kids harder than others, some that kind of stay out of the way and stuff. And I feel like that's a real it's a real discussion to have is, you know, like how much do you push your kids? Um, how much do you not push your kids? Do you push them at all? All that kind of stuff. And, you know, Patrick, you got you got two boys now that are I think nine and seven, right? 
Correct, yeah. Yeah, 9 and 7. So like, you know, going through what you went through and and now being on the other side of it and and kind of shepherding your kids through hockey if that's what they choose and aspire to do. Like if you had advice for the parents that are out there that have kids that that might have a drive for the game and and love the game, you know, what would you say to them? Well, it's a it's a good question. I think it's a tough one to answer without having secondary questions, but I think the, the big picture is, you know, you wouldn't want to do anything with your kids through hockey or anything else from the standpoint of pushing them too much or anything that when they're done with it, and most are going absolutely nowhere, they're not going to college. They're not playing pro. They're not, you know, the NHL thing is just an absurd amount uh, of, of bounces and luck and timing and, you know, whatever. So forget about that. But anything even below that is, like you guys know the percentages most people do at this point so are you going to do anything to sacrifice your relationship with your kid once the stuff is over would be my first thing like why would you ever want to do that because at the end of the day that's what most people are going to have it's when they're done playing sports you don't want and i and i know like i know a bunch of people who to this day they're around our age and they play i played with them growing up and they didn't go anywhere and they're like you know like i'm just not that close with my dad because the way he handled me growing up was just, it, it, it affected our relationship and we haven't found a way to get past that. So, I mean, that, and that to me, is, that sounds awful. It sounds, it sounds miserable. It's, it just, it feels, it, it, it's kind of like a, a decision that does affect more than just what you're doing day to day with your kid when they're little. And I, I don't, I know it's hard and it's an emotional and people, part of the problem nowadays is it costs so much money that people can get, even people with good intentions, I think, get confused with thinking, well, I'm investing. Well, you're not investing in anything. What you're doing is you're expensive or not. It is what it is. And you're paying so that your kid can have an experience. You don't get anything back out of it just because you put money on the table and someone took it from you, right? If you want to invest in your kids, put all that money that you're, that you're putting into their hockey, just put it in a bank account. And then by the time they're 18, you can pay for their school, right? So I think it's just, it's, it's keeping a level head and, and it gets more difficult the older they are. And if they're starting to improve and, and you, you know, people start to think they can potentially do something with the game. How do you measure that? How do you decide when to push or not? I think it's, I think you need to potentially look for advice outside of, you know, your own opinion. And just like, you know, we all like to talk about, if you have a problem with the coach, whether you're a pro or if you're a parent of a kid, you know, take a day before we overreact, before we make a decision, really take more time to think about what you're doing and saying. And that way you'll make less mistakes. Look, no, nobody's perfect. Like I coach, I'm the head coach of my oldest son's team. And it's hard for me not to, and he, he's not the best player on the team, but you know, it's like, you know, how, how much do I push him? How much do I leave him alone? I gotta be honest. I think, most kids learn how to be good from just playing and it's not magical coaching. I think you coaches do way more harm than good. And I know most have good intentions, but I, I apply the same thing to a parent. Just don't do anything that's going to negatively affect your kid because you won't be the difference in them going anywhere. Just like one coach they have isn't, isn't going to be the magic pill that gets them to college or junior or whatever. Right. So I think it's different too. Like some kids need to be pushed. I, my expectation of my kids, if they want to play AAA and they both do is that let's, let's max out the effort every day. If you're putting in an honest effort, at least then, you know, 
you're meeting the minimum requirements of the level you're playing. And if you're good enough to stay there, you will, if you're good enough, if you do enough to improve and move on, you will, but at least then you're, you're doing what you should to respect your teammates and the coaches and, and everything else that goes into trying to play at that level as a kid. And I, and it's the same thing I would say to them about going to school. It's not about what the results are. It's what, you know, are you doing things the right way? So that's kind of the guidance that I would give. And I've, I have lots of people who ask me that about their own kids and how to handle it. Well, let me ask to know their personality. Yeah. Oh, hundred percent. Love, love that last part. I mean, you know, when we were coming up and Toph and I have talked about this on the podcast all the time, like it was way more militaristic style leadership, I think probably across the board, I mean, maybe in, in mm-hmm. the world and businesses, you heard about that. And obviously junior hockey is, you know, now it's way more like individualized or like you break it down into smaller groups. I can push these guys hard. I need to give these guys a pat on the ass. I can do this, that, Mm -hmm. but what I wanted to ask you, you don't need to get like super specific with the, the the really bad stuff uh, that, that happened with you. But, um, like since you're a coach and you have kids and you went through what you went through, like what are some of the things that you see other parents doing that? And and maybe, you know, your dad did them that you see that it's, a lot of people are pushing their kids too hard, or you see a lot of this negative where you think that could affect their child hockey player negatively. Are there any like broad strokes that you see that you could give some parents and coaches listening? Like, Hey, you know, I don't really think this style works or I don't think this one thing works or anything like that. I think if you, if you want to give constructive criticism, like don't do it in the car right after the game, because the kid already knows, even when they're little, and it's the same way I would, I approach um, stuff on the ice with them right now, where like when it's, it's an egregious mistake, like you don't need to point that out in front of the entire team. They typically know if you want to take the kid aside to help them. Oftentimes, like why even point it out? Most of the stuff that kids should be doing, even through junior and, and we're starting to see it more now on the pro level. And you guys talk about this all the time is the small area games and, and the, the two on two and all the, the stuff that like they sort out their own mistakes and they learn from their mistakes from that and experiencing just playing and learning what works and doesn't. And they're at different points, despite their birth year, they may be a year or two behind mentally, mentally or physically in some areas and some not. And the rest of it, I just don't think pointing out everything negative all the time does any good. And the last thing that most kids want to hear from their parents is all the things that, that they're doing wrong. They want to know that their parents are proud of their effort and provide some encouragement and trust in you know, hopefully I know it's not possible for everyone, but hopefully you have a decent coach and you don't have to do much of the, the hockey talk with your kid because they don't, they don't really want to hear it. And most of it's always negative. It's really easy to watch anybody play at any level and point out all the things you think they do wrong. One of the things I do with some of the pro guys I work with is, is video work. And when I watch them, it's tough for me not to pick three things I want to fix. And like, let's, let's focus on a couple of things they do well that we can make better. Cause I think in long term, that's, that's what they want. That's actually how you do get better in my opinion. And certainly when you're, when you're, an, when you're an older player, but with, with the little guys, I think wait, wait a period of time to where emotion is no longer part of the conversation, both for the kid and the, and the adult. And I would, I would apply that to coaching and also parenting. I think that's one thing I, I learned. I forget who told me that, but I mean, it makes a ton of sense. If you can wait 24 hours and, and maybe talk about the kid's game, then, then it's less, there's less attachment to what just happened. You can get in the car right after 
and it's you know it's 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 tense depending on how the kid played or if they lost. You know, you lose a close game at the last second. Anybody who cares is going to be upset about that. On top of maybe if they had anything to do with it themselves as a player. So just just take some time. I think would be my advice. I love that man. Yeah, I think it's awesome. I think it's so good, and and we make a point to. Uh, a lot of the higher level people that we have on the podcast to ask them about that car ride home because it is it's so important I just had uh, a parents meeting with the, the kids that I'm coaching this year and one of the biggest things that I talked about with the parents is how important that car ride home is for sure so I think mm-hmm. uh, I think that's that's awesome advice and and you know we we, we don't want to ha- have you here all day <laughs> and, and obviously it's a big part of your story to talk about this kind of stuff but you did have some amazing things that happened in your career as well and one of them that that I wanted to talk to you about is, you know, we are the same age, so we got to play with a lot of the same players, and you got to win a, a World Junior Gold Medal for the U.S., um, you know, and which was, you know, Jeff played with a lot of the guys that we grew up playing with and stuff, and so we were watching mm-hmm. that just, you know, glued to the TV and all that kind of stuff, so happy for you guys, and just, dude, like, take us through that Mark Andre Fleury goal because it's one of the most famous goals of all time. And uh, just take us through your mindset and what happened on that goal because I just, you know, for, for us growing up, like that was one of the biggest goals in history in our minds, uh, you know, with the U.S. winning the World Juniors and stuff like that. So how, how did that all transpire and how would you feel after that went in? It, it's a big goal, and I'm not saying that because I scored it. And it's funny, I didn't actually even score it, but I got credit for it. But like <laughs> the entire... <laughs> the, the 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 entire development U.S. development program at that point was, and I know that's not directly linked to the World Juniors every year, but we know that there's a there's a very high percentage of kids that end up playing in that tournament who were at the program. If that wasn't the case, then how'd they get to the program in the first place? Like, would, you'd, you'd have some questions there. But so, you know that. But when I went to the program, it was in year three, maybe two, maybe four. I don't I don't exactly know, but they hadn't had much success at all. So they were feeling the heat. And I know this because I've had conversations with, with people who were very much involved in trying to get that thing off the ground. And, you know, like the fact that the funding was coming from everyone else that played minor hockey and only a select group of kids were getting the benefit of that. And I don't know for sure that it's still operated that way, but you can see how that could be a bone to pick for a lot of people. And I get it. I get both sides of, of that equation, but the, the age groups before the, the 84, 85s were, they didn't do much, certainly not in world juniors. And that goes beyond too, of course, the start of the development program because that tournament had been going on for long before, but the U S had never won the gold medal in that tournament. And we did, we were the first ones to do it. That's why that goal is a big deal. Not because it's me. It's the first, it's the winning goal for the first time that the United States ever won the world juniors. And of course it was a ridiculous circus goal. And I'll, I'll go through that like you asked me, but that age group, the, the 84, 85 combo, which is the, the one that won the world juniors. We also won under 17s. We also won under 18s. So, and we had the same core of like 12 guys for all three of those tournaments. And for two of the three, Mike Ease was our coach. And without, without a single question in my mind, he was the best coach I ever had. And it's not even close, way better than anyone I had in the NHL. Now, part of maybe that's due to what my mindset was at certain points in the NHL. And, you know, like I think different people like different coaches for different reasons, but without him, I don't know that I would have 
been able to play pro. Like I had no idea what I was doing when I went to the U S program. And I think point being, he taught a lot of guys how to be hockey players. Like it's great that you can do this, or it's great that you were good at the school in Minnesota that you the high school that you came from or wherever. Let's learn how to play hockey. And that's what that program does or did. I don't, I don't, I think they do a good job now. I don't know as many people that, so, so what that does work that there. Mean? So what does that mean? Cause I think that's like, that's such an interesting question right there. You say he, he taught us how to be hockey players. You know, we have a lot of coaches that listen to this and I'm interested in that point of view too, because um, you know, Mike Eves, he's to me, he's a legend too. And I, I know you're, you're not the only one that holds him in, in that high of regard. There's a lot of people do. So, you know, what was it about maybe his practices? What was it about the way he viewed the game that really taught you guys how to play the game and, and eventually led to all the success that you're talking about at all those different tournaments? Yeah, absolutely. He, he had an expectation that we do things the right way every time. And if we didn't, we were told and corrected. And he also, though, was someone who you wanted to do the right thing for. And I think that's always the secret sauce for being a good coach. Once you reach a certain age of player, because it's like you have to respect the person. And if you're able to take criticism and learn and take direction from someone and also know that all they want is for you to be the best you can be, because that helps you go where you want to go as an individual. And in turn, it makes you, it makes the team better. And then you have team success, which, which matters always once you get to a certain level. And I wish younger coaches would understand coaches who coach younger people would understand that. And again, this isn't anything that you guys probably don't already think. And I've heard you talk about it before, but if you're coaching 10 year olds, why don't you make them better players? And then you'll win more games and stop trying to win games with a system because any, anyone watching you as a coach, <laughs> it's applause. If anyone, uh, if anyone is watching, like if you think you're going to be a coach at higher levels, people are watching you too. And they're not concerned so much with your record. It's more about how'd you get that record and what way are your teams winning? Are you developing players? Cause to me, that's the only thing that matters, not winning in minor hockey. Not if you do it the wrong way. Anyways, back to Mike Eves. It was also too the standard that was that you had to live by when you went there. I don't know what it's like to be in the military at all, but I'm guessing it would be similar. Like we all woke up at the same time. We went to school together and we had to do our, our homework to a certain level. And it was like, if you fell out of the plan, someone would drag you back in either a teammate or a coach and not in a way that made you want to quit. It was a way that made you want to get better. And I think that was the one thing that he more than anything else opened up my mind to was that, Hey, yeah, you think you're good, but you're not even close to what you need to be. If you want to go to where you say you want to go. So the way we practice, like I had never been told to stop at the net after I shot, I had never been told like, why don't you, one thing I tell kids and even older guys I work with is like good players, their bad shots still hit the net at a high percentage. And so he was saying, you know, he was telling stuff like, like that to us. And, um, just the way that we practiced funny enough, small area games, everything was competitive. Everything was competitive. And we had really good leaders on that team, like Mark Stewart and Ryan Kessler and Patrick Eves, his son was on that team. And like Parisi would join, he played at Shattuck cause his dad was running it. Right. But he would join us for the tournaments. So our core was, was really good and, and very mature and driven sometimes that's just the right combination or you happen to get a good age group. 
but I think without like without Mike there running that and and knowing what would what we would need to get better and and I think I think they still do stuff like this, but it w- we would train so hard the day before a game because he didn't care how we felt. It was like a mental test to see if we could go play a game against a junior team that didn't even have back in the day. And I know you guys probably remember this in the NAHL, they didn't have to wear visors. Mm-hmm. And I don't think they did in the USHL either. Jeff, you guys, Tofer, I know you guys played in that league. I don't know yep. if that was the case. Yeah, back first then. year I played in the but, USHL that you didn't have to have a visor. It was like playing in the NHL. <laughs> crazy. And, crazy. Yeah. It was in, it was insane. And some of these teams were just loaded with meatballs, like Cam Jansen's team in St. Louis. Ah. They were just ask, <laughs> like, they had ten, 10 guys asking us to fight and we have full cages on. So, so eventually we figured out that we were going to have to fight once in a while. Otherwise we were going to get bullied around. So like guys who'd never fought like Mark Stewart, our captain, you know, he was our biggest, probably toughest guy had never had a fight in his life. He's fighting some 20 year old psycho. And like what, not that I'm promoting fighting. What I'm saying is it was like, wow, we're watching out on the bench and we're like, if we can't work hard for that guy, then like, just take your stuff off and go home and go do something else because like, this isn't the right place for you. And I, I just think I credit Mike with that. Mike Eves for being a leader without jamming it down your throat or, or being someone who was always negative. He would, he was hard on me, especially I think because I didn't have good habits and Hey, funny enough, you know why I didn't have good habits? Because I grew up with a psycho who taught me the wrong things about hockey. I was selfish. All I wanted was points. I didn't get it. Didn't care about my team. I did care about my team, but on the ice, I had, like, if I didn't score as a kid, double the abuse. So what do you think I tried to do every game, right? So, like, and then all of a sudden I'm 15, 16, and, it's, and that stuff's, like, being broken down. And I think Mike had identified my background and maybe the right way to approach it. So I have, I have tremendous respect for him and that, that whole family. I lived with them for a little bit. So, yeah, I mean, that program was great for me. I can't speak for other people's experiences, but, you know, he, he just, he really knew what he was doing and was able to coach each kid their own way, which in my opinion is the only way if you want to help people. I w- I love that man and and it goes back to it too like I'm a big believer and and we talk about culture all the time and that kind of culture that that coach he's created there and created Wisconsin when he went there and they won the national championship beat us in triple overtime to get to the frozen four thanks enough um but uh, <laughs> um but like it, like kind of tying it all back together to your goal like when you have a great culture and you have guys that love each other and you have guys that play for each other and stuff like that I, <laughs> luck follows like luck follows that kind of stuff. And the goal that you scored was not a skilled goal. <laughs> that was, that was uh, as fluky. I didn't, a- I didn't even answer that, did I? <laughs> well, no, I, mean, we, I, I interrupted you on the question. So um, bad, bad hosting, but uh, like, you know, it's just like, it's a fluke that happened, but like you look at, and, and we watched that game front to back. I watched it a couple different times, like, because we were so invested in it. Cause we had so many buddies that were on the team and stuff like that. But like you watch your guys' bench and you watch you guys after you won and how, like just how much you loved each other and, and just like how crazy of a thing it was. And, and for you guys, like at the world juniors, you talk about the NTDP, like that is the, that's the last time all you guys are going to play together. So it has an extra yeah, special, you know, kind of flavor to it where it's, it's the last thing that you're going to be able to do. And so, you know, you go back to the goal, it was a fluke goal, but maybe it wasn't so lucky because hard work and, and love and culture like that creates luck. I'm a big believer in that. 
Yeah, I think, I mean, you can, you can, you can call it luck. You can call it other stuff. You can call it, I think for us, it was will at that point, we knew it was the end of the road for that, that core group of guys. Um, there were a handful of 85s like me and Suter and, um, Jake Dowell was on that team. I know I played for Wisco. Sorry. Sorry, Tof, but, um, <laughs> like, Likens, yeah, all those Wisco guys. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, like, so we did come back the next year and play at Grand Forks and, and whatever, but like the team who'd won the 18s and the 17s, it was it. And we were down three, one going into the third period of that game. And to your point, Topher, like, it was like, what are we going to do about it? We've done all this other stuff in the past. No one thought we would, we would be able to get to that point in that tournament because that Canada team was stacked. It was basically the same team who won the next year. They're all 85s. And we know that team is that 05 Canadian team is probably the best world junior team of all time. And it's connected to the, to our 2003 NHL draft and the rest of it. We know about that, but we, we didn't have their talent for sure. Montoya was our goalie and he was unreal. So like there's, if you go and watch that game that he made a couple saves on Crosby that were unbelievable, like, like 10 bell reaction, athletic saves, and he kept us in the game. We didn't play well at all the first two periods. And like, not, not to sound like this is a, a movie or anything, but Mike Eves comes in in, in the second intermission. He didn't yell, didn't talk about strategy. We hadn't played well. We hadn't played our way up until then. And he said, what do you, he basically said, like, what are you guys going to do about it? Because they haven't seen your best game. That was what he was trying to tell us. And he walked out. And no one said anything. Like, you know how sometimes, like, the, you know, like the captain will stand up and say something. But we, we, knew, we knew we could play better, at least. And we went out and we tried to do that. And I scored fairly early in the third to make it uh, 3-2. And then, which was Snipe. actually a really nice goal. Yeah, that was yeah. a rip. Water, water bottle. <laughs> yeah, ex- exploded Flurry's water bottle. <laughs> Ever heard, uh, heard of them? Goal, yeah. Yeah, no big deal. I like to tell people that that goal takes some of the ugliness away from the second one. So, and then Kessler, Kessler tied it. And then now they were nervous. We could tell they, they, we were starting to press that team was good because we just suffocated other teams with our, our pressure, like, like stick pressure, puck pressure. We knew how to play like a pro team. And most of that was because of Mike and the fact that we, we played together before in so many tournaments and games and everything else. So, we just smothered them and they didn't have much. And when they did get a chance, Montoya was there. And then, so the, the goal, the winning goal was, was a play where, first of all, it's funny. I have a hard time watching myself, frankly, back then, because I was a center that played like a winger. I would cheat all the time and just do, it just makes my head hurt watching it. But <laughs> they had a shot. And I used to do this all the time in the NHL too, as a winger. But when you're a center, this is not what you'd want to do. I think they took a point shot and it was flubbed and I just took off and we all know that play. And, and so I was in behind, uh, Brent Seabrook. Right. And Stafford, who's a winger and probably was doing my job that I was supposed to do. He gets the puck down low and he, he fires it out to me. So by this point, I'm almost at the far blue line and I think I'm in and I, and I, I feel like I am and I have space and I catch it and I'm like, okay, I'm going to get a breakaway here. And then I get hooked by Seabrook, which in today's game, that's a penalty shot. And I think, I think I even said this like, it's like a jackass in the media after, like I said, if I didn't get hooked there, I was probably going to score on the breakaway anyways. Said something stupid like that, but no, I, I love <laughs> like, that. I love that. I hate boring I interviews. Was, 
continue. I was really, yeah, I know me too, but I was really cocky back then. And like, you know, so I, I, I have the puck, I'm getting hooked. So at this point I'm just trying to get to the net and, you know, I, I get turned around and I'm facing my goalie, even though I'm in their crease and flurry obviously had went to the puck and tried to shoot it away. And it, it hit Braden Coburn and went in the net. Now I didn't know that at the time. I thought he shot it off me because we're right there. There's the three of us, me, Seabrook, and Coburn. And I thought it had hit me because I was right there in front of him and I just had had the puck, right? And I got spun around. So the celebration's also embarrassing. I like go down on one knee and fist pump it like I just went bar down. But I was so, we were so excited. Like, and I didn't know how it had gone in or anything else. And we just couldn't believe that we had put ourselves in that position. So it's a, it's a crazy goal. I, I've watched it many times and there's a, there's a picture of me, I had just turned around to see that the puck was in the net and Flurry's like on his stomach with his head on the ice. And I tweeted out every July 4th. And I've been doing this since I had, since I've had Twitter, which is probably four or five years at this point. And people go nuts. People go nuts. All they do is reply. All these Canadian people go insane. They reply with the gif of Crosby scoring in the Olympics. <laughs> and so that's to me and I, I i get a kick out of it right and and every year it's like a fresh batch of new people that don't know i'm doing it as a joke but i get a kick out of it it, it must mean something if that's your go-to reply is like arguably the first or second greatest goals ever scored by canada then I, I guess i guess the world juniors for the u.s one that that meant something for us so it's cool i mean winning and, and this is funny too and i know other people say stuff like this all the time but you don't realize then that maybe that's the only thing you ever win in your career. Right. And you know, me and a bunch of other people didn't win anything in pro and that's it. Like the world juniors is that I have a gold medal and it was a career, a career highlight from a team standpoint, of course, playing in the NHL to me means more than that, but from a team standpoint, uh, it's just, just an awesome experience with, with guys who like, you know, we're, we're bonded for life for that. And, in a few years, it'll be 20 years, which is unbelievable. 2024. So hopefully, maybe we can get a reunion or something for the, the for the team because uh, it's a it's a unique moment for us, but also for USA Hockey. Like it really took the heat off of the program and and everything moving forward because it showed that we could develop and you could win something at an international level. Because that's why that thing was started. They couldn't do anything internationally. Couldn't win. So. I think it, it, it worked and it certainly, I think it helped all the guys that came after us. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you look at uh, a couple years ago or maybe even last year, the Oh one group, um, you know, would they have five in the first 10 picks or five in the first 15 picks or something from the NTDP? I mean, uh, yeah, just, awesome. just crazy stuff. Very, very cool. And, and, uh, actually that's it's a good segue. Cause I wanted to ask you just reading a couple articles, you know, preparing for this interview. Um, one of the things that really struck me was, um, you know, the way that you were almost treated going into that draft. And so, you know, a lot of people kind of heard about your upbringing and all that kind of stuff. And it kind of sounds like there were some, some teams in their interviews that took some liberties with stuff like that. But I don't really want to necessarily talk about that. But what I did want to ask you was one of the things that I read was that one of the people that interviewed you was Wayne Gretzky. And you got to see Wayne Gretzky, and, and he went a completely different route, and, and he actually said he was proud of you for, for how you kind of came out of it. So talk to us a little bit about that interaction. And, uh, I mean, that must have been for Wayne Gretzky to come up to you with all that you had endured to, to say something like that to you, being who he is and where he was. You know, what, what was that moment? What did that mean to you? 
<laughs> yeah, that's funny. Um, sometimes I forget about that. As crazy as the, the draft was for me, that, that was the one really neat experience that was obviously unexpected. Um, I don't know if he was, I don't think he was coaching yet. I don't know if he was involved with the Coyotes at that point. So he was, I don't know, he was attending the draft. Maybe he was, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know, but um, he wasn't, he wasn't, he didn't want to talk to me because he was like representing a team or anything like that. He had knew my, he knew my story. And at the draft, I fell till like the late second round and that draft's really good. And, and looking back, I probably did fit closer to where I went than what I could have gone. But nonetheless, I was supposed to be probably a late first round, early second round pick, all things considered. I had major flaws at that point and, and attitude questions and the rest of it, which I'll gladly acknowledge. So I did fall in the draft, but it was, it was a big deal. I was upset and mostly due to the fact that the things I were, I was being punished for were out of my control. And it was that I had a, a lunatic father and no one really knew the details about that. So it was right around that time that I started doing media just because my agent thought, get this out there, let people know at least that you aren't the exact problem. Like we know that there's been kids over the course of time who have gotten in trouble off the ice and all kinds of stuff like that. And that wasn't my situation. And I think maybe there were some people who, who at least wondered that and going back, who knows about my interviews? Like, I don't really remember them. A lot of teams were, were pretty rude with some of the stuff they were asking me and saying, but I think they were also rude to other kids and gladly. I think that's mostly changed, but, uh, going back to the, like the Wayne thing, I'm in my hotel room. I'm disappointed. I got a bunch of buddies there and friends and, um, we were going to, you know, have dinner and maybe go out and it's in Nashville and my phone rings in the hotel and it's one of my friends. And he's like, Hey, Wayne Gretzky's here in the lobby for you. He wants to see you. I'm like, come on. Not, it's like, I don't think this is a funny time to, to make jokes like that. And he's like, no, seriously, you need to come down. So I did. And Wayne stand there by himself. No, like, I'm not saying he travels around with security, but it wouldn't be a stretch to think that he would walk around with other people at a hotel during the draft, but he, he showed up there by himself. And this part's kind of funny because of the fact that I was 18, but he, he's like, Hey, I want to talk to you. He kind of puts his arm around me and like guides me into the bar in the hotel and shuts the door. And there's no one else in there. And I don't know if he had set that up or not. I, I don't know if he did. I mean, that's even more impressive for him to, to care enough to not want to have other for other people to be around. But like, um, we grabbed a couple beers for the record. I didn't have a beer in front of him. Certainly had some after, but, uh, <laughs> he, he wanted, I think what he was doing though, was he was trying to, to clearly present the situation that like, I just want to talk to you. This isn't about what I think of you as a player or anything else. He just wanted to tell me that he, he had read, I did this ESPN, the magazine article about leading into the draft and my background. And there had been, uh, there's a show in Canada. Basically it's like 60 minutes and they had done a profile thing on me. So the, the word was out and he just wanted to tell me that it didn't matter where I was picked. He thought I was a good player and don't let the family stuff change what you have in front of you, what the opportunity that you have is and getting picked is, you know, we hear this all the time, but it's just, it's a starting point and you still got to go and make it whether you're picked first or last or not at all. Right. So just to, to hear that from him, I, certainly probably could have asked him more questions and gotten more out of the experience. Uh, I was fortunate over the years to, once he started coaching to see him whenever, when I was playing with LA, we played Arizona all the time. 
and I'd see him at the rink at the morning skate and, and just say hi and, and talk a little bit. Nothing ever super deep, but I mean, for the greatest player of all time to show any kind of interest in you is, is neat. And I have a picture of me and him, me and him standing in the restaurant bar that is in one of my kids' rooms on the wall. And they don't know the, the whole the whole story or anything yet behind it, but they just think it's me and, and Wayne Gretzky. So, yeah, very very cool, very very neat, very. I felt fortunate at the time. I didn't get it. I don't know that any eighteen year old really would at the in that moment, and I sure didn't, given some of the other issues I had. But looking back at it, um, I, I did thank him for that later uh, in my career and stuff. And it's just cool. I mean, for for anyone to care that much, it doesn't have to that has nothing to do with me on any level other than just saw my story. It's pretty neat. That's unbelievable. And obviously that story is, that story is obviously amplified because it is the greatest player ever of all time that probably no one will ever reach his heights, but like any coach listening to this or any parents, but especially coaches like that can just show you because you could be a coach who never played the game. But if you're a coach of a kid and you take five minutes out of your day to speak to a kid one-on-one, like it's something that they will remember for a long time, if not forever, especially like when it's not just being negative with them. If it's, you know, just talk to them, ask them how they are, ask them how things are going, especially if, if, if you know, it's a kid who's having problems at home or, you know, a kid who's struggling this way, or even a kid who's doing well, just taking five minutes to set aside with each of your players every now and then will literally do so much for the relationship you have from coach to player, player to coach for their self-esteem to let them know that, you know, their coach cares about them. It's just going to help so much. Like it's literally insane. And I know that from me being a player and some coaches taking the time every now and then to do that. And I know it from the opposite side, being a a coach doing it with players and hearing from the parents, you know, they'll text me you know, a day later, a week later, like, Hey, thank you so much for pulling little Johnny aside. Like he came home and he was in such a good mood and, you know, know, blah, blah, whatever it is. Like I can't even explain coaches that are listening to this, how much of an impact two to five minutes of your day can have on somebody that looks up to you. That's younger. So definitely like, don't be afraid to do that. No doubt. I think that's not to be dramatic, but that's actually something you take with you, you know, like for the rest of your life, like things, things you can tell kids that they can take out of hockey and apply them to other, other stuff. Right. I mean, and that, that's really the, the big picture lesson from that story for me is did it help me with hockey? Sure. But it's more, it means more than that. And I think that's, that's what your point is, Jeff. I couldn't agree more with that. For sure, man. Well, you know, going into your NHL career, you know, a lot of ups and downs that you went through, but you, you, you come in the lockout year, it was the lockout year, maybe the year after, but you scored, what was it like 47 some odd goals in the AHL and then, uh, and then, you know, up, up and down and you had some good years, you had some not good years. And then eventually uh, you, you just kind of walked away. I think uh, you had even mentioned earlier that, um, a lot of the stuff that happened in your childhood, it, it came to to fruition from a mental, emotional standpoint uh, a little bit later on in your career. So, you know, if you can, I mean, yeah. this is a tough thing to ask a question. What was your NHL career like? But, you know, what, what were some of the <laughs> what were some of the biggest things that you learned, you know, through the ups and downs of your NHL career and then, you know, kind of walking away uh, maybe before you were physically ready to walk away? Um, what, what would you what would be the biggest takeaways you think that that you learned? I would say 
the best way to describe my entire hockey career was extremes, extreme highs, extreme lows, and really not much in the middle, which as you guys would know very well, to be really good and consistent, you have to try to stay in that middle, right? And to try to be consistent and not get too, too carried away with the good and not let the bad affect you too much. I know, Tove, you've talked about being really critical of yourself and not being able to let go of a bad performance or what maybe someone else thinks about your game or whatever. And for me, I was, I had a similar issue. Like I just, I'd have a bad game and I just couldn't, I couldn't get over it. And that really, you know, I, I, I found a way to deal with it at the beginning and towards the end of my career though, I just, it wasn't even other people's expectations at that point. It was my own. I just felt like I was such a better player or had the ability to be such a better player than like what I was doing. So at the end of my career, I'm playing on the fourth line, playing seven minutes with my buddy, Biz Nasty, who can't shoot the puck in the ocean. And <laughs> like, like, like I, I'm on the bench or I'm, and, and my other, am I, my, by the way, so, I didn't, I played center my whole life until, um, I should have mentioned this during when I was talking about the draft, long story short, when I got to Minnesota, who I was drafted by Jock Lemaire was the coach and he called me into his office day one. And he's like, you're not a center. And I said, okay. He goes, you're never going to be good enough to play center in the NHL. You're too soft. You're weak. You're little. He goes, what happens if you got to play against Joe Thornton? I said, I don't know. I guess I'd try to play against Joe Thornton. He's like, Nope, you better learn how to play wing. Cause you're not going to play center. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I guess I'm not a center. So, so then I go and play in Houston. You reference the, the year I had I exploded, had a bunch of goals, played wing, but so I played wing all pro. And then towards the end of my career um, in Arizona, I'm playing center. Like, I haven't played center since I was 18, 19. And like my, my winger is, is, is biz and, and Rafi Torres who literally, <laughs> could only put, and this isn't offensive because he would, he would admit it. If you ever asked him, he could only play on the left side. So we'd come back into our own zone and you know, like we all know how that works. First guy, doesn't matter your position. You're going to go help the D that's fine. And then you fill in from there. The wingers would fill in. doesn't matter what side you play. Well, if you were, if the puck was on the right side and you had filled in as the left winger, he would literally like cross check you in the back and be like, Hey, you're my <laughs> That's unreal. <laughs> so, it's unbelievable. In NHL, I swear to God, I bet I could find clips of this if I tried hard enough on the internet where he'd give you like a, a tap in the lower back and be like, hey, get out of my spot. So then you'd have to be, you'd have to sprint to, to the other, to the board, to the wall there to, to get, you know, to get into your spot as a winger. So point being, like, it's just so far from where I was playing first or second line for half my career and like getting backdoor tap-ins from Kopitar. And now I'm like, how am I supposed to generate offense with those two guys? And, it, and again, this isn't, it's not about them. It's about me. If I had figured out a better way to, to be more effective in a different role, I probably could have played longer, but I, I, I didn't know how to do that. Mentally, I couldn't deal with it. So I played like 15 seconds a game on the second power play unit. And then I was like a shootout specialist. The last two or two years I played basically. And I'd sit on Tippett. I actually really liked Dave Tippett in Arizona. I thought he was awesome. And I don't think he liked me at all as a player. They just, I made that team and played up and down. And that was the year they went on the long playoff run. I had nothing to do with it, but I was on the team. And, 
he, he, I'd sit on the bench. I swear to God, I hadn't played since the first period. And he'd be like, just so you know, if we, if we do get in a shootout, you're going to go. So figure it out. So I'd go in the room, I'd go in the room and stick handle and not even watch. I knew I, he was not going to put me on the ice for any reason. So there'd be six wow. or seven minutes left in the game. And I'd go like, don't go jump on the bike. Like go get my hands ready. So I just, it was such a, it was i I'd like to use a word that I won't use, but my mind was like, just, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't accept where I, where I was as a player. I could, what are you, I what are you talking about? <laughs> we know, we know. You yeah, had a mind I, F. I yeah, exactly. So I was just, you know, it was, it was tough. So, you know, it, it was awesome playing in LA the, the, when I was there. And part, part of what happened to me was we were building and that, that core was slowly coming together. And we knew we were on the verge of doing something and close to winning. And they needed older players because we had a young core and they, they, you know, like they had to figure out a way to get some older guys who'd had some playoff success because that's kind of where we were at. And out of the five or six of us who were there, the young core guys, it, it was me and Jack Johnson who they moved for older guys. And I was traded for basically Justin Williams. It was a three-way trade with uh, Eric Cole was involved in that too. But, um, and obviously like, the guy's a legend. We know that it, it worked out well for them. And unfortunately for me, again, I'm not going to blame Edmonton, but I was ill-suited, completely ill-suited to go from like a really good team we built together and you feel like you're close to doing something positive. And then now I go to Edmonton and we're God awful. It's like going right back to square one and I'm being misused there. And again, not blaming coaching or anything else, but like, so I, I, I killed penalties a lot actually in the NHL, but never five on three, never. They don't happen often anyways. And it's always like your top one or two guys, typically centermen that go out there and kill it. So I get to Edmonton, my first game and Max, he's the coach. And he's like, Hey, I hear you're really good at killing penalties. I'm like, okay. I, I, I'm like, okay, I'm all right. Like usually I'd go out in LA. I'd go out in the, on the, for the second minute. And I just, try to pick pucks off and score. And, and one year, I think I had four or five shorthanded goals, which is great, but I was by no means a defensive specialist. And I get to Edmonton and that's kind of like what he thought I was. And I don't know why it, I hope it wasn't because of poor pre-scouting or something or what, but like, I, so the first game we're, we're in Anaheim and they get a, We get a five on three and I got to go out there and kill it. And I'm like, Oh my God, I haven't been in a five on three since probably I was in junior. So it's just stuff. Basically what I'm trying to say is like this crazy stuff was happening and I couldn't, I didn't know how to deal with it. Didn't, wasn't getting good advice. Didn't have anyone to talk to, um, immature in some ways. And it just, so again, like my big picture, it's like the highest of highs, the lowest of lows and not, not knowing how to kind of handle either spot. And when you do that, you play, whatever I played three, three fifty, whatever games in the IHL and two fifty in the American league and a little bit in Europe. And I'm 28, 29. And I've had enough. Like that's, that's the arc of it. And mentally I just couldn't, I couldn't play anymore because it wasn't fun and I was miserable, completely miserable. And I, I really had no reason to be. So, I mean, that's, that's the way I'd sum it up. It's crazy, man. I mean, it's uh that's the thing that people, you know, I, I think, the more that 
stories like this get told and the more the people understand just the human side of professional sports, I, I think that's such a powerful, powerful thing. And you're, you're hearing more people, um, a little bit more vulnerable to open up about it. And, you know, it's uh, it's every, every business is a human business and every business there's a human toll to things like that. And there's so many different factors to, you know, happiness and fulfillment and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, to, to be able to walk away like that under your terms and, and to see where you've gone with it now, because I can't imagine that that was easy for, I mean, it might've, I mean, it might've been easy because you weren't, weren't having a good time, but that's all you've ever known is, is being a hockey player. That was your identity and, and all that kind of stuff. And, um, what, what was, what was it like right after you retired and, and what led you into what I want to talk about next is what you're doing now, because what you're doing now is, is fantastic. You're, you're helping the next generation of players, uh, you know, learn the game. You're helping the next generation of players come up through the system and, and really teaching them the lessons that, that you learn and teaching them how to be hockey players, just like my heaves did for you and things like that. So, you know, going into kind of like where you were when you left and then getting back into it now, was it something you lost your passion and was there something specific that made you regain it again? Like what were those couple of years like, um, in, in regaining your, you know, where you are in the game today? Once I stopped playing, yeah, I just, I couldn't, first of all, I had to do months of therapy and I went to California by myself for a month to do stuff. And, um, I was just searching. I didn't know, I didn't know what I needed to do to fix my issues. And I, tr- I was trying to sort it out and I've always felt maybe to a fault at certain points that I had to figure it out for myself because that's how I, that's how I grew up. And over the course of time, as I've gotten older, I've realized that um, taking help is like a, uh, a sign of intelligence and, and, and maturity and the rest of it. But at the time, right when I finished, I just, I didn't know what to do. So like long story short, I, I basically didn't pay attention to hockey for probably a year, year and a half. And then I started to get into it, watching it a bit more. And like, I felt the way I had always felt about it. And you guys know what that is. It's like, it's a, it's a love. It's, it's something that I don't think ever was going to go away. Even if I didn't get back into it because of teaching or coaching or whatever, I think I would have still been a fan and watched and consume it like a maniac because it's, it's what I like more than anything else. Um, basically I was, we were living in Florida and we decided to, to move back up here to where my wife is from. And my kids had not even really skated before we moved back up here. And all of a sudden they wanted to do that. And then they wanted to play hockey. So then now I'm at the rink. And at the beginning, I didn't really want to be there. I didn't like it. I didn't want to coach for sure. And then over time, um, I just couldn't, I couldn't stand there and watch what was going on on the ice. Like I was, I had to like walk out of the rink. It was like, no offense to certain people, but no one, like half the people that teach kids don't know what they're doing. And, and maybe that's a bigger problem beyond them. And education needs to be improved and the rest of it. But I just felt like I couldn't sit there and watch and I had to get involved. And, and how, how was I going to do that? And, and, and how could I make sure that I would be able to coach my own kids without pushing them or being, being annoying, even, even just if they just didn't like it. So I had to, to, to kind of, it's like checks and balances with anything else. And and for the most part, I just kind of leave my kids alone when I'm on the ice and I find that works better. They like it. And if at home, if they want to go deep on anything, then, then we do it. But you know, like I, 
I ended up coming back here because I got offered a job at TSN to do radio and, and I did my book and that came out and I was doing public speaking and I was just kind of dragged back into the game and, and for different reasons. And it all kind of got put together in a mixing bowl, I guess is one way to describe it. And I was like right back in the mix again. So then once the media stuff, I basically, I, I wanted to get on TV and I couldn't do it. And there, there just wasn't worth my time to continue doing radio. So I stopped. And then I started to work with some kids and then older players, word got around and then older players started to get involved. And I started working with pro guys. And then I started coaching my kids because they were old enough to be in an actual organization. And then slowly this stuff kind of built. And then I started doing video with guys again, most, now, I don't advertise this stuff or anything else, and I'm starting to get to the point now where I've expanded, and I'm going to get a website and, and do some different things and have some other people help me so that I can get more done. But it's just kind of grown on its own, and my passion for the game has really come back. And I love trying to make myself better and educate myself on the game. And if I knew what I know now when I was playing, and I know everyone says that about being knowing what they know now and, and applying it to when they were younger, but... I would have been a way, way better player. Like, I think there's certain ways you can quantify the game and really, once you know certain things, how do I apply those to the players to make them better? Instead of going out there and just doing what has happened for the last 20 years and kids get better for one reason or another and no one really knows why, right? Like, there's enough, there's enough research that's been done in science and stuff we know about learning and motor skills and all this. So I'm just fascinated by all that. And that's how I found your podcast is I was looking for something to listen to while I walk my dog or whatever. And I don't like most podcasts and chicklets guys are great. It's funny. It's entertaining, but there's no like hockey talk really on that. And you guys do a ton of that. And it's great. The guests you have are educational and the rest of it. So basically I just got obsessed with the game again. And you know, like I, I do. I've decided recently, I just decided that I'm going to be an advisor because I get people that I work with on the ice all the time and they end up, they like, they don't leave me alone on the phone. And I figure, well, why isn't your agent or advisor doing this for you? Why are you bugging me about it? So I'm just going to do that. And, and in the past, maybe I would have said, ah, I don't know if I can, or if I don't want to, I don't, maybe I need to contact so-and-so first to see if it's, I'm just going to do it and I'll sort it out. And I don't know exactly where that fits. I don't want to be Papersan's super agent necessarily, but like if, if there's like a, you know, I, I think there's, and you guys would know, cause you went to college. I think there is a category of players that don't get the attention they deserve because most people who are advising guys are doing it for free because well, it's illegal not to. Right. So, but can you do player development and other stuff with me? And then also, can I help you get what you need and give you an honest opinion and maybe guide you and contact teams for you or whatever? I don't know if that works. I'd like to try to see. So that's kind of where I'm at with like, with my hockey company and the, the on ice stuff is, is really neat and, and working with, you know, NHL players and then also like eight year olds you really have to do your homework to make sure you're giving what each person needs and not have this blanket idea of what is good and what isn't. And, and that's what, what I believe in. And, and I think good coaches do that. And you guys reference the people who are good at that stuff versus the old way of doing things. And I think the more people that are open to that, 
the better chance kids have to improve because the problem around where I live is that there's lots of guys who played like low level junior or maybe even pro. And they think they know the game because they played that level, but they have done no education since. Right. So now we're just coaching based on my own experience. And if that was 15, 20 years ago, that's not good enough. Even if you played in the NHL. So that's, that's kind of like the, the short firm version of what I think like player development should look like. And, and what I try to do. And I watch them. I watch, if you are a player development person of any sort and you don't watch guys play games, you're a con artist. End of story. Now I'm not saying you can't go on the ice and, and work on stuff. And, and if you know what you're getting and the sell job isn't something else, then that's fine. Don't get me wrong. I'm not criticizing people who do stuff like that. I'm criticizing people who claim to do the other stuff, the shortcut way that it really bothers me. It really does. So I try to do, I try to, to do the opposite basically of what, of what that is. Well, I think it goes to it too. And, and you mentioned it, like you're passionate about hockey. And when you have as a player, when you have somebody that's passionate about the game and passionate about you, I mean, that just puts you on such a better foot with them. And uh, I, I just, man, I think it's so cool that you're able to regain that, that passion for it. And, and I also think it's really cool that you're telling your story and you're able to share, you know, even some of the mental strength, mental health struggles that you had. And that's something that I've been very open with on the podcast. I've been to therapy and, you know, I, I feel like the more that we can be open because there like there are a lot of people that are suffering in silence and the fact that you're able to go out and and provide your your perspective that you're and also add to it you know one of the greatest hockey minds as well (laughs) i mean when you're talking about advising i mean you get the hockey and you get the personal side to it and you have somebody that's that's very passionate about both sides of that that you're able to work with i mean that's amazing but i totally agree with you too like and you tweeted about it just the other day the coaching education side of it i mean that's where we're severely lacking as uh, Hockey Canada and USA Hockey in my opinion. I mean, it's like, hey, take this class and then you're certified and then we'll see you again never um, at at some juncture of it. And you know, it's the, the game is always changing. And, and I think, you know, the example that you use, you get so many of these people that were lower level pro players or, you know, division one or division three hockey players that, that coach the way that they were coached 20 years ago. You know, if, if we played the game like it was 20 years ago, I mean, geez, <laughs> that's, that's a little bit of a different game and the game's going to be different five years from now and 10 years from now and all that kind of stuff. So, um, I just yeah. think it's, it's, it's awesome that you're able to provide all of that type of stuff through your social media, through what you're doing right now in your next venture. And the fact that you're able to do it as, as something that you love to, I mean, is that if at the end of the day, I mean, how does that feel just being able to once again, just like do something that you absolutely love doing i mean from a mental health standpoint is that that's just got to be awesome man yeah it is honestly and i mean you meant like just to you know for people to admit that they decide to do something to make their mental health better like it, it shouldn't be a big deal it's like if if i hurt my knee why wouldn't i get that looked at well what's the difference and i think we we're coming we're moving along in the right direction when that that stuff as far as that is concerned, but like, I don't know about you, but for me, it was, it was really freeing in a way to just share it. And, you know, it's not up to me to make sure that whoever hears what I'm saying, digests it the perfect way. It's, it's, if what I'm saying or sharing helps anyone awesome, like that's great. 
that's kind of the point. And then the more you do that, the better you actually feel about yourself. That's been my experience with the 12. I don't know about you, but like, and that's also kind of to answer your question about the, the, all the hockey stuff I do now, I just decide to like, to do what I like to, to do what I love, frankly. And, and the rest of it will sort itself out. Like if I go into a certain area of, of my business and I don't know exactly how it's going to work financially or who I, who I may need to get to help me sort it out in the future. I can do that. I can do that on the fly. Again, I'm not doing anything that is going to be a mistake that I have to fix on the back end. But I'm just saying, what I'm trying to say is like, go after the stuff you like and, and you can figure out some of the other questions after, you know what I mean? And, and I don't think maybe people do that all the time. Like I don't want to do anything else. I don't know anything else. I love hockey. I figured out a way to make money doing it and also um, help people. So to me, if more, if more people had an opportunity to do that, I don't, I know that not everyone does, but just go and do what you like. And, and I think you're, you end up being a happier person on the flip side of it. And for me, that's, that's kind of what I've learned. And a lot of it has come in, in like the last year for me, it's like, you know, like, do I want to work for a team? Do I want to stand on a bench right now? Not really. I don't want to miss the stuff my kids are, are doing all the time. And so figure out what, what you can do with what you want and see if you can make it work. I mean, that's, that's where I'm at. I love that Patty. And I, I love that you're, you're kind of like idea you're doing for your business. Cause I have some kids who are not my like best players that I have. They're like junior players and they're paying advisors $3,000 to basically get them to a tryout with like a low level junior league, junior team. And I'm like, dude, I'll make that call for you for free. And that stuff drives me Seriously. nuts. And I think, I think that's like a really, that's a really, I don't, I don't love that. And we, I have advisors, youth advisors messaging me, DMing me on Twitter that I don't know all the time. I'm like, Hey man, love what you do. Get me on the podcast. And I'm like, you know what? I don't really respect what you do. Um, right. I can make those calls for free. And if it's a kid I believe in as a person or a player, I will make them for free. I know you got to eat, but I just don't like that. I don't like that business. But if you're an advisor who truly cares about your clients and you can provide them like actual instructional on ice video, all these things that you playing at the high level you did, or somebody who just is a, a huge student of the game. Now you're adding so much value rather than just calling a friend that you have to get them a tryout and charging them a bunch of money. Like, I just, I don't love that. Our game is too, too good for that type of thing to be going on so like if you're going to get an advisor and, and you somebody like you can provide all of this value on top of advising them for me as a if i was a parent that would make sense for me to pay money to have someone like you do all of these things holistically to help my child um so anyone out there you know i'm sure you're not looking for tons of new clients but like look for guys like a patty here who's doing the right thing and he cares about the player he cares about the kid or the pro and he's trying to help him in a bunch of different ways not just making one phone call and splitting the profit with the coach so they get your kid a tryout yeah i i mean absolutely it, it, look i i don't i and i said this when i shared what i was going to attempt to do on social media the other day like i don't have all the answers i if, if i can't help you or if you need something i can't give you right now then i'll help you get that but I already have, I have three college kids who I've never met in person. They contacted me through my Twitter, saw my work email and they sent me an email and one kid plays at CC, one kid plays at Matt Kato, like, you know, and, and they, they want 
an honest opinion. That's what they want. So, so part of it is just telling them where I think maybe they fit and, and like, are they paying me for that part of it? Not really. And in, in the future, if that is something that happens, then, then it will. And I think that's, it's, it's like a sign of, it's a sign of goodwill. And again, I can't spend my entire day doing that, but I mean, let's, let's not the way I look at this and, and what you described, Jeff was, it's like, uh, you know, they're in on they're the, the two people are in on it and they're making money. And then the, 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 the individual, the player gets nothing out of that. So yeah, you get to go to a tryout, but you're trying out with a team that you had no chance to make in the first place. So why would you even want it? Like I, I was, I was talking to this one kid who's going to play pro. He's a good player. Just can't maybe figure out the level yet. Go play somewhere where you're going to succeed and, and get a chance to improve instead of trying to barely maybe hang on in a different league. And then now you're just looked at it as a guy who can't play in that league. Right. So it's like, um, you're just, if, if you're someone who's taking money from a kid and then just getting them, you're just handing off a problem to another person. It's like a D man who can't pass and everything he throws is a grenade and he's just passing his problems off to other people. And then he's like, what, you, you know, when you're a winger and you got to get it, a garbage puck off the boards and try to get it out. And then you get run over and you go to the bench and the coach is like, Hey, why don't you get the puck out? And you look down the bench at the, at the teammate who can't stick handle. He can't stick handle, and you're like, "Hey, bud, can you maybe give me something better than that?" Right. So that's kind of the that's that's the way I look at this stuff. And I think if you put put a little bit of effort in at the beginning, and then also too, like if you want to take it to another level, well, then if we want to do the video work that I do, then like that's extensively. That's not for free. But I, I'll give you an upfront, honest opinion. I'll watch one of your games, and if I can help from there, then we decide to do that mutually. This isn't a, you give me this upfront, and then I decide what I want to do for you after the fact, because that, to me, should not be happening. Totally agree. Love it. Awesome, man. Well, we, uh, we love the fact that we got to have you on our podcast here today, and, and uh, very, very cool to, to see what you're up to nowadays. But, I mean, I just, so many things, you look back at this podcast, just like so many great little teaching lessons for, for everybody, for coaches, for parents, for players, and all that kind of stuff. And you've had an amazing journey. I, I know it wasn't easy, um, but uh, the, the fact that you're able to have such a positive effect on so many people now, man, I mean, I just think that's such an awesome thing. So thank you so much for taking the time to come on our podcast here today we wish you nothing but the best of luck and if there's anything that we can do to help you uh, in the meantime and in the future certainly let us know well like i said earlier guys i I really think what you're doing is is great for hockey i enjoy listening to it i'm happy you had me on my only request is to come on again at some point down the road and we're going to dive deep into something hockey wise yeah, people to be so. I want I want people to be so educated that they just turn it off after half an hour. They just can't stand to listen to it anymore. So <laughs> that's awesome. I love it. I'm and, in. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll I'll send you my autograph after. I know you said you're a big fan, so I got you, bro. Don't worry. Yeah, just, just shirtless too. Sure shirtless, big yeah, Baywatch style. <laughs> a picture coming on the pod. Yes, yes, please. <laughs> Oh God. All right, man. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of your night. And, uh, yep. Let's, let's, let's put something back on the calendar after, uh, after we hang up here for sure. 100% boys. Take care. All right. See ya. <laughs>